Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The leap from simple genetically programmed behavior to symbolic thinking, language, and culture makes our species, as we know ourselves, different from all others. How this is believed to have occurred is described in a book called The First Idea, How Symbols, Language, and Intelligence Evolved from Our Primate Ancestors to Modern Humans. Written by Professors Stanley Greenspan and Stuart Shanker, their hypotheses assert that our ability to use symbols and language depends on specific types of nurturing interactions and other cultural practices which have been passed down and thus learned anew and further developed by each generation, dating back to pre-human and even non-human primate cultures. In this program, We'll explore these ideas in evolutionary thinking and developmental psychology with Professor Stuart G. Shanker. When I spoke with him from his home in Toronto, Canada, he began by describing what happened that began to differentiate the evolving human species from apes and thus allowed us to begin using words and symbols to communicate ideas. About four to five million years ago, as we were becoming increasingly bipedal, uh, we had to develop all sorts of new caregiving practices in order to adapt to this new environment. What differentiates our species from all other species is that our newborns are fully dependent on their caregivers for the longest period of any primate. We think the reason for that is fairly, is fairly uh, straightforward. In order, to, uh, in order to reconcile two wonderful advantages that this new species had, namely bipedalism and a large brain, nature had to come up with a solution because there's a limit. There's a limit on how large a, ba- how large a brain the uh, females of this species could give birth to and still remain bipedal. The solution that nature came up with, which Stephen Jay Gould uh, identified now, I think, about 35 years ago, is that the human baby was born essentially prematurely. The human baby is essentially a fetus outside the womb for at least the first nine months of life. And perhaps as much as two years. In other words, in comparison to other mammals, the human baby has to be two or even older before it can act on its own and be on its own with some security. That's exactly right. Now, let's take a look at this newborn human baby and see how much has it actually developed at birth. Well, the extraordinary thing is that only about one-fifth of the human baby's brain is developed at birth. The other four-fifths are largely wired in the next two years of life. The way that the brain gets wired in these first two years of life is not predetermined. It is primarily a function of the kinds of nurturing interactions that the infant experiences with its caregivers. 
I would presume that if you compare this to children who either were grown up with feral animals like dogs yep. or who were locked away in closets with no human contact, That's right. during that window period of development, if they don't get the nurturing and the human contact, they're never going to be able to develop it. That's exactly right. And the two cases you just mentioned are extremely important sources of information for us. We have other similar sorts of what are called high-risk or multi-risk situations that tell us an awful lot about the kinds of nurturing interactions that the child needs in order for her to develop what we would regard as normal capacities. We can look at kids that are in impoverished orphanages. There's been quite a few studies done on such orphanages in Eastern Europe. We have our own extensive research on children with autism. And also, uh, we have an incredibly interesting body of research by primatologists who have raised a species of ape, bonobos, in a very language-enriched environment. And the result has been developmental advances which have surprised the entire scientific community, telling us that this is a reflection of the plasticity of the primate brain and not just the human brain. What are some of the examples that stand out? Well, in my own life, I've had two extraordinary uh, experiences. My own training was in philosophy and psychology, and I had a very formal kind of training. And we were taught certain things that, you know, the brain matures according to a genetic timetable, that only the human brain has this timetable, only the human brain has the capacity to, say, pick up language within what you were just describing as a sort of critical period. But that's pick up language and and repeat it. Don't some other uh, creatures have the ability to pick up language and understand it? Well, if you'd asked me that question 25 years ago, I would have said that you're crazy, that it's impossible, and that whatever the scientists were claiming, they were confused or misrepresenting their data. And in fact, I actually got started in my own career by writing an article much like that, which was a critical review of the work that Sue Savage-Rumbaugh was doing in Atlanta, Georgia. And Sue uh, responded to my article with a phone call. She invited me down to Atlanta to spend a week on my own doing whatever tests I wanted with a bunch of bonobos that she claimed were able to match the linguistic abilities of a two-year-old child. Can you describe what a bonobo is for us, please? Yeah, a bonobo looks very much like a chimpanzee. It's more slender than a chimp. And in the literature, there's a very famous claim now that they have 99% of our DNA. What's clear is that bonobos are our closest genetic relatives on Earth. And behaviorally, uh, they have some very interesting similarities with us as well. So um, they are clearly a very intelligent form of ape and socially uh, a much more benign species, much easier species to work with, actually. So what did you learn from working with them? That she was right. (laughs) That's the short answer, that these apes can, in fact, speak at around the level of a two-year-old kid. In fact, in some areas in which they're particularly interested, their linguistic abilities are far higher than a two-year-old's. If you're talking about sex or food, uh, it's like talking in front of a teenager. How were you able to create these studies? What did you set up to learn this? Well, what we had to do was we arranged to... uh, I have a close friend, um, Talbot Taylor, who's a professor of linguistics at the College of William & Mary, And we were given permission to do a comparative study of a a two-and-a-half-year-old little girl 
and uh, two of the bonobos. And essentially what uh, Tully did was he wrote up hundreds and hundreds of uh, sentences in which we wanted to assess the grammatical as well as the semantic uh, capacities of the ape as opposed to this two-and-a-half-year-old kid. So the sentences are all very cleverly designed, and you ask one and then the other, and you switch things around to try to get a true read. And what we discovered was that for all intents and purposes, their grammatical, uh, their grammatical abilities were identical. Now, that's not full grammar. That's not saying that a bonobo can do what a four-year-old can do. Uh, those bonobos could not. But what they could do is they could use what uh, linguists call item-based constructions. It means that they have grammar. They have the simple elements of grammatical constructions, not just memorized words, but putting these words together in a creative fashion. Let's step back to what I was asking a few moments ago, and that is what occurred in our species that allowed the development of language. You've mentioned that a human newborn is premature, but what else? Well, then what was happening, uh, and in the book we try to trace this over the long evolutionary trajectory of humans. So uh, you have to remember this. This is something that dates back to the point of, at which our species started to become bipedal. So it traces back to pre-human hominids, uh, the Australopithecines. And what was happening was caregivers were developing all new kinds of techniques for nurturing and engaging their infants. And it was very important that they um, developed strong attachment with these infants in order for the infant to survive. What's critical is that these caregiving practices that they were experimenting with and mastering was something that they passed down through learning. It was not passed down genetically. It was passed down through learning and instruction from one generation to the next. Let me just digress for one second. Jane Goodall has done enormously important research showing how this sorts of learning in caregiving uh, or mothering styles can be observed in chimpanzees as well as in humans. But what humans were doing was they were developing more and more complex ways of raising their infants that promoted ever more sophisticated communicative interactions and communicative abilities in their young infants. How do you know that was happening? Because when we look at the fossil record, what we see is that all sorts of anatomical changes were occurring that would have enhanced the ability of these creatures to communicate using many different what we call modalities, to be able to communicate in many different kinds of ways simultaneously. For example, uh, as they got more control over their hands, their hands would have become a critical element of gestural communication. The same is true of their faces. They were losing facial hair um, and acquiring more and more facial muscles which gives the human an incredible capacity to communicate, we call it non-verbally, to communicate all sorts of thoughts and emotions through facial expressions, your eyes, your mouth, your cheeks. Um, there's another incredibly important uh, change that was occurring. We can see a very gradual process in 
the complexity and control that these early human species had over the vocal cords. The voice is a wonderful instrument for modulating communicative um, uh, subtleties. We can convey all sorts of very subtle emotions or ideas through subtle changes in tone, pitch, things like that. That's why we can communicate so effectively over the telephone. When we talk about the changes in the hands, the yes. probably the development of the opposable thumb, right. the loss of facial hair, and right. the control over the vocal cords, right. these, I presume, and tell me if, if you have a different thought, these are random genetic variations, a mutation that develops over time that allows the uh, newborn that has this change to advance or to be uh, uh, more sexually attractive to another one and thus pass on its genes. We would disagree a little, and I'll tell you why. In the book, we try to develop the ideas that a new group of evolutionary theorists have been working on over the last 20 to 30 years. And I'm thinking of a group called Dynamic Systems Theorists. Some of their most important leaders are people like Gilbert Gottlieb, or Robert Licklider. What they've argued is that, in fact, it's the other way around in evolution, that behavior precedes genetic variation. That as these creatures were adapting to new environments, they would have been developing new capacities to deal with these new environments. And that these capacities would have been within the range of their current genetic capabilities. Prior to the variation prior to the variation. Now, in some cases, there may well have been uh, genetic uh, variations that followed that sort of consolidated and perhaps enhanced these behavioral changes. But the key is to see uh, behavioral changes proceeding and, in some cases, paving the way for the selection of these so-called morphological changes. We're talking with Professor Stuart G. Shanker from his home in Toronto, Canada. He and Stanley Greenspan are the authors of a book called The First Idea, How Symbols, Language, and Intelligence Evolved from Our Primate Ancestors to Modern Humans. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Professor Shanker, tell us more about how the behavior precedes the genetic variations. Does that behavior have anything to do with the subsequent genetic variation, or is that just a random connection? There are two points to stress. One is that, according to uh, new models that are emerging, there may not have been as much genetic variation as we think. That what may have been happening is that these behavioral changes were tapping in to unexpressed uh, genetic potential. That's one possibility. Or the second possibility is, yes, there would have been um, not so much a random uh, pressure, but uh, certainly uh, an understandable pressure for why certain kinds of uh, modifications would have been selected. Like if, what? Well, uh, you gave a good one a second ago. If, um, if uh, um, vocal, um, um, uh, what we call affective signaling, if vocal preverbal communication was becoming increasingly important, then a creature, uh, creatures that were having a larynx that was uh, continuing to descend, giving them ever more control over their vocal cords, that would have been selected. The key, though, would have been that there was already this uh, move towards vocal signaling. Um, and uh, it wasn't just this coincidence that somehow 
a creature suddenly had a descended larynx, and then they figured out, wow, you know, this is a really good way to signal, um, you know, signal uh, intentions. It would, would have been the other way around. Um, in all cases in the evolutionary history, um, it would have been behavioral changes that were the driving mechanism. Now, in other point, words, a person could make um, vocal sounds that weren't necessarily uh, words, and they would pass yep. this along to the next generation, yep. and the next generation would be born with a more developed uh, larynx, right? And um, would then be able to use it in a more advanced way, right? Okay. Now, that, this, of course, this argument represents a fundamental challenge to orthodox Darwinian theory. Uh, and the reason it's such an important challenge is that um, Darwinian theory, or at least the orthodox theory, has a sort of single model approach to both lower and higher organisms. That is, it's a, a one-model approach where ge- uh, random genetic mutations um, are selected for, you know, whatever environment they're best suited. Uh, but... That model doesn't really um, apply to higher, more complex organisms, uh, particularly organisms like uh, the great apes and us, who um, have this capacity to essentially adapt to an unlimited number of new environments and uh, do so really through uh, cultural practices that have to be passed down and learned anew through each new generation. So the argument is that you really need a, a, a two-model approach to evolution when you're looking at higher versus uh, lower organisms, that in the case of higher organisms, this process of cultural learning is enormously important, particularly because what it means, and uh, I want to come back to something you said at the very beginning, it means that these abilities, these capacities, are not hardwired. It means that should these cultural practices change dramatically, then we will see um, a serious threat to the child's development of these abilities. But that presumes, and I, I, I guess you're referring to the isolated child or the child that is uh, growing up with non-humanoids. Right. But how about in other cultures? Um, um, well, for for instance, um, uh, certain Asian languages cannot be repeated by native speakers of Western languages unless they develop that ability when they were very, very young. Yes, I mean, it's quite clear that, uh, as you know, all, all infants are born with a, what's called a general processing capacity to um, pick up the sounds uh, and segment the, segment the sounds of their particular culture. But um, what happens is that somewhere between 6 and 12 months, the uh, child's um, ability to perceive and segment speech seems to become, um, uh, it locks in on the particular culture in which that child is born. Each culture, like in your example, cultures draw very subtle but significant different uh, boundaries between sounds. And once a child's, uh, this is called categorical perception. Uh, it's the ability to perceive or segment speech sounds of, of a culture. Once a child's per- categorical perception is fixed, it becomes very difficult for them to uh, tune in to uh, different systems of segmenting these sounds. However, it can be done, it can be learned, 
And in some cases, some, some individuals uh, have an extraordinary capacity to pick up almost instantly, as it were, different systems of um, speech segmentation. A good example is Meryl Streep, who has this extraordinary ability to uh, hear, and, that, and, and because she can hear it, be able to reproduce the sounds of vastly different uh, speech systems. So uh, we suspect that although it's very difficult once these uh, systems have become locked on the, on the culture, this is not, uh, uh, it's not impossible by any means for an individual to overcome this. And in fact, there are, uh, in your, your example is a good one, there's a, a computer program out now that uh, is proving to be enormously beneficial for um, native Chinese speakers who want to be able to speak English with a so-called, you know, American accent. And uh, through this sort of uh, subtle uh, computer-induced uh, training, uh, they can acquire that ability. Let's look at the Swiss children as an example, yep. where many of them have the opportunity yep. uh, to learn French, German, and Italian as infants. Yep. What's going on in their brain at that time? Well, I, we do exactly the same with my own son. My own, in our house, we speak uh, half the time in English and half the time in Spanish. And uh, what's happening is, he, uh, <laughs> as a young child, he does not know that there are two different languages being spoken in the house, or in your example, four. Uh, for him, it's all one language, and he, for the first couple of years of his life, was always puzzled uh, when people would come to the house and he would speak to them indiscriminately in English and Spanish, and they would only a respond to him half the time. But what, what it shows us is that uh, the plasticity of the brain, and remember we were talking before about this incredible plasticity in the first two years of life. It is so, it is so great that he is able to develop, um, he is able to develop in the beginning uh, an ability to hear all of these sounds. As he grows older, he will begin to differentiate between different systems, and uh, he will be able to sort of screen out, uh, or it's called inhibiting, the systems that aren't relevant to the person that he's speaking with. What I mean is he'll learn that when speaking with uh, an English speaker, uh, not to use his uh, Spanish sounds and his Spanish vocabulary. And uh, we have data coming out. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, some uh, wonderful studies by a colleague of mine, Ellen Bialystok, showing that this actually gives kids a cognitive advantage, not just linguistic, but by learning how to screen out uh, these other languages, they get a cognitive advantage, too, vis-a-vis uh, -vis their age mates. In addition to being able to determine this cognitive advantage, what are some of the other future-directed uses of the studies that you have made? Well, uh, we, do, uh, we do an enormous amount of work uh, with uh, young children with autism, and uh, one of the things we're trying to show now is that First of all, we can identify a child that's at risk of autism at a very, very young age. And uh, if we initiate intervention with this child immediately, we have a very good chance of preventing the syndrome from developing. Now, in the book, our model is based on uh, a series or stages of emotional transformations that human beings went through as they, uh, as they progressed along the human evolutionary trajectory and that our young children go through as they go through the first years of development. Uh, typically, with a young child with autism, they get, or a young child who's at risk of autism. Can you define autism for us? 
Well, autism is really a spectrum disorder in which a child has um, a marked communicative inability, a marked uh, communicative deficit. Uh, they have a lot of trouble. Uh, they have a lot of trouble interacting with other people, um, and we uh, understand the biology uh, of uh, these challenges that they have. And they also typically engage in what are called perseverative or stereotypical behaviors, which seem to be a way of them trying to uh, cope with the uh, sensory chaos of their world, trying to reduce the stresses that they're experiencing. Um, uh, I, I, you know, autism is a very big topic. Um, uh, let's just say that um, there are many different kinds of um, profiles that we see. And what we're interested in is really the uh, telltale signs of a child who at a very young age is at risk of not experiencing the kinds of caregiving interactions that you and I have been talking about. You and I have really been focusing on... Uh, factors that interfere with the caregiver's ability to interact with their child. Uh, maybe the uh, caregivers, you know, maybe we're talking about uh, uh, a, drug, a case of a drug addiction or a case of war. These are, um, these are things that happen to the child for, um, you know, uh, uh, for no fault of the child. But the opposite also holds that the child may have certain kinds of biological challenges which interfere with that child's ability to interact with their caregivers. If a child, for example, is very sensitive to light or to sound, that child may try to avoid any social contact, which for that child will be painful. Uh, the sounds or the, or the touch or the, or the uh, visual stimuli are too great and overload the child. Well, Professor Stuart Schenker, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, uh, I'm right now reading um, all of the books by Bernd Heinrich. Uh, he's a wonderful nature writer, and uh, uh, I'm, I just finished a book called The Trees in My Forest. And um, I found this, it's an absolutely overwhelming book because he, in effect, is telling a very similar story about the evolution of, and development of trees to the story that we're, talking, uh, that we're telling about the evolution of humans. And what I mean by that is that uh, whatever their genetic uh, potential and their genetic substrate, he shows that how a tree develops is determined in infinite ways by the environment in which the seedling grows. So I'm learning much, much more uh, from his books about how we have to understand our place in nature if we are going to uh, not just understand how we develop, but try to help those of us who are having troubles uh, developing on what we would you know, treat as a normal or typical trajectory. Professor Stuart Shanker, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much, Barry. Stuart Shanker is a scholar and professor of the development of language and child language studies at York University in Toronto, Canada. The book he recommends is The Trees in My Heart by Bernd Heinrich. This interview with Stuart Shanker was recorded on November 23, 2004. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. 
And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.